morning, everybody, for a second time. Look at that, you got two good mornings from me. Uh, we are going to be continuing through Joshua. We're going back to Joshua 5. If you were here two weeks ago or caught that message, we looked at kind of the entirety of Joshua 5. But we got to one verse that we skipped over, and I said we're going to, you know, as I was prepping for that message on Joshua 5, I was like, man, this, this one verse has enough to unpack that it needs its own time. So we're going to be at Joshua 5, 9 specifically. Um, before we begin, please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. That last song, the evidence of your goodness, God, I think of your word, Romans 1, where it says that since the beginning of time, your invisible attributes, your divine power, your, your very nature is seen in the world around us. And I'm so grateful for all the evidence you give us, Lord, even in the faces of this beloved family, just seeing the evidence of your goodness. We are, we are so grateful for how you pour out on us. As we continue to worship by opening your word, Lord, would you lead this time? Would you come fill us, that we may listen with ears opened by you. May these words be from you, God. Hide me entirely. Get, get rid of Sam in every way. Let this be your spirit. Uh, let this be a time that is pleasing to you and led by you. We want to understand. We want to know who you are. We want to, want to know who Jesus is. We want to look like Jesus, and we need you to lead us in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're Joshua 5, 9, I said, one specific verse, and it's, it's really an incredible verse when you unpack it. And it's also one of those verses, you know, we've looked at it, and, we, and I'll keep reminding us all that Jesus is present in every book of the Old Testament. Jesus is present throughout Scripture. And this is, this is a verse that really points to and foreshadows Jesus in the Old Testament. And Joshua 5, 9, uh, to set up the background again, so the people were on this side of it. This is the Jordan River. The people were on this side of the Jordan River. The promised land was on that side. God said, hey, consecrate yourselves. Joshua goes to the people. He says, consecrate yourselves. We're going to cross the Jordan River. And then they cross the Jordan River, and it's incredible. And then when they get across the Jordan River, they again consecrate themselves. They get circumcised to, to set themselves apart for holiness, to set themselves apart for God. And so we're in this, this situation where they haven't yet advanced to start the Battle of Jericho. They're in camp, healing after they had consecrated themselves. They set themselves aside. And it says, When the circumcising of the whole nation, this is verse 8, was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. God says, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. That's a big word, right? How, I mean, how many of us use reproach every day, right? How many of us hear reproach? And let's be honest, you don't have to raise your hands. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. But how many of us, we hear the word reproach and we're kind of like, I'm not quite sure what he's going for. It doesn't sound good, but I don't know exactly what reproach means. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at God rolling away reproach today. And reproach, this word reproach comes from a word that literally means, it means the taunt of the enemy. It means a condition of scorn, of shame and disgrace. So this isn't just I feel badly about something, right? This isn't like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry you asked me to pick up milk and I didn't. Like, I feel badly. That's not reproach. Reproach is the enemy actively belittling you, the enemy actively taunting you and mocking you and deriding you and treating you with contempt. It's a condition of shame and dis And this is, this is not unearned, okay? So that's the other thing with reproach. It's not like the enemy is just taunting you with no reason. This is a condition of shame and disgrace. 
that we find ourselves in, that we have placed ourselves in. And God says, today I rolled this away from you. I rolled the reproach away from you. And this is where it gets really, really just cool and really meaningful for us. Because sometimes I think there's a tendency, at least in my own life, I've been guilty of this at different times. I look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament and I'm quick to say like, wow, those bozos didn't get it at all right? You read through Judges where it's like, hey, God delivers them, and they're like, yay, this is good. And then the very next verse says, and then they immediately forgot the Lord and abandoned all his ways and reverted back to their, you know, their wrongdoings. And we read that, and we're like, man, what's wrong with the people of Israel? And, and I say that, like, 30 seconds after, I just muttered something terrible about the driver in front of me because he didn't use a turn signal, right? I'm like, I'm such a holy person, and I'm going to think these terrible thoughts about someone who didn't use a turn signal. What's wrong with those people of Israel? So I think sometimes it's tempting for us to approach the Old Testament and say, oh, they had reproach. They had, like, man, I'm so glad that's not us today. Uh, There's a really plain and simple truth that we all need to face, and that's that's exactly who we are. This is our life. This is is who, apart from Jesus, I am a a man of reproach, and, and all of you are too. Hope I didn't burst your bubble, but if I did, it's a bubble that needs to be burst. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember that word sin. We've looked at this a couple times, refresher. Sin is anything other than the perfect holiness of God. There's not a single person who ever has lived, ever is living, or ever will live who can say that they are without sin. Because sin is anything other than the perfect holiness of God. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do we earn because of this? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. Wages are something you're due. Right? If you show up to your job and they don't give you your wages, you're not happy about that. You're like, hey, I put the work in. Give me my wages. Give me what I have earned. Oh, the wages of sin are dead. Well, I don't want those wages. You can hold that paycheck back. No, all have sinned, all have earned death. Genesis 34, 14, Leviticus 27, very specific examples that demonstrate that sin equals a condition of disgrace in our lives. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation... I like that. But sin is a reproach to any people. Oh, I don't like that so much. I don't want to think of myself as someone who's earned reproach, who deserves reproach. Proverbs tells us sin is a reproach to any people. Ezekiel 16, 52 says, Bear your disgrace, your condition of shame and disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Your sin has made them look righteous. Bear your condition of shame and disgrace. This, I mean, the, you could go through and you could replace right you with Sam Belsterling. You could replace you with any of your names. Right? This is who you are apart from Jesus. This is what you've earned apart from Jesus. So when we look at Judges, when we look at Joshua, when we look throughout the Old Testament at the people of Israel, we can't immediately rush to say, oh, I'm better than them, I'm different than them. No, they are us. We are a people who have earned a condition of shame and disgrace. We have earned the taunt of the enemy. What is the taunt of the enemy? It's death. It's the grave. It's, hey, you've earned death through your sin. So you have to be afraid. You have to be ashamed. Think of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They eat of the fruit that they're not supposed to. And prior to this, they have enjoyed fellowship with God. When God comes down to walk with them, they walk with Him and they talk with Him. And this is a whole unbroken fellowship that they enjoy. 
that they don't run from. Sin gets introduced, and what's their immediate reaction? God comes down for fellowship, and they hide because they're afraid, because they're ashamed, because they are in a situation, a condition of disgrace, and they recognize this. So the taunt of the enemy is this fear, this fear of death. The number one fear in the United States is a fear of public speaking. The number two fear is fear of death. I, I mean, one, that's a little crazy that we're more afraid of talking than we are of dying. But, but two, people are terrified of death. They're terrified of the finite death. But that's because they don't understand that death isn't finite. Believers, Christians, we don't have to be, I'm not afraid to die. I really, like, I don't want to die today. But I can truthfully say, if I died today, my life would get infinitely better. Because I'm now with Jesus. Right? Paul wrote that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So this taunt of the enemy, where the enemy can say, you sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God, you've earned death, be afraid of that. This is our condition apart from Jesus. This is the condition of the Israelites, this reproach that they find themselves in. But in Joshua, God says, hey, I have rolled that reproach away from you. I have taken that condition of scorn and contempt that the enemy wants to heap on you, and I have removed that from your lives. And this is a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer, I, I want this to be just a joyful encouragement and reminder of what has happened in your life. And if you're joining us online, if you're here and you're not a believer, I, I want to tell you how you don't have to be afraid of death. How the condition of shame and disgrace that the world finds itself in, that doesn't have to be true of our lives because of what Jesus did, foreshadowed by God rolling the reproach away in Joshua. So you've got this condition, right? But then what happens? Jesus comes. Jesus dies on the cross. He takes our penalty for us. And how does Scripture describe that? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why do you think when you, I mean, do the, have fun with this, right? Next time you're in the grocery store, look at the, look at the magazine rack. How many headlines are you going to see about how to have your best life now? This is how to improve your life. Ways to look younger, ways to feel younger, right? Melt that fat off your body, blast those wrinkles away. Do everything we can to pretend like we are not slowly advancing towards physical death. Because we're petrified of it. And so we are enslaved to this fear of death and desperate to do everything we can to deny that it's happening. Jeff Bezos Amazon, right? Guy who's worth way more, I'm going to confidently say he's way, worth way more than all of us put together. Jeff Bezos just went up to space because he's like, I have an extra $100 billion and I want to go to space for 10 minutes, right? He just announced that his new project is now going to be trying to fund immortality. Like, just had an interview where he's like, now I'm going to try and fund this pursuit of staving off death. Why? Because the world is slaves to the fear of death. Hebrews says that Jesus died to destroy this fear, 
to destroy this slavery. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus dealt with the shame of death. Jesus dealt with the condition of scorn and disgrace. And he destroyed it. He dealt with it once and for all. The enemy can't taunt me with death. Sam, if you preach the gospel, you're going to die. Cool, I'm going to go to heaven. You can't taunt me with death. You can't taunt me with disgrace. Because there's an honesty about who we are. Yes, apart from Jesus, scorn and disgrace. Absolutely. Paul wrote, Jesus came to die for sinners of whom I'm the worst. Any one of us could say the same thing. I could say, Jesus came to die for sinners. I'm at the top of that list. But then Jesus died for me. And Jesus took that condition of scorn and disgrace and he destroyed it. And this is where it starts to get cool, right? Where I say you start to see the parallels. So what's it say in Joshua 5? It says, God says deliberately, I rolled away the reproach. And he literally uses, he could have used any word. This is God. His vocabulary is better than mine. He could have used any word. And he says literally, I mean, the, the literal word that God uses is, I have rolled this away. This is rolling away. Then we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus' death. We come to Jesus' resurrection. And there was a massive stone placed in front of the tomb. What happened to that stone? The Bible, God could have smashed the stone. He could have toppled over the stone. He could have just made the stone disappear. He could have broke the stone in half. Jesus could have come out of the grave through the rubble of the stone. But what's it say? Matthew 28, 2, Luke 24, 2, Mark 16, 3 through 4. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. I don't think there's any sort of like deeper truth to that. I'm not pointing that out to be like, hey, there's special. I just think that's really cool. I just think that's this awesome parallel of God saying to the people of Israel, I will roll away your reproach. And then in the very act that destroyed the reproach of the enemy, the first visual of it was a stone rolled away. I just, I just think that's really cool. Uh, and that's a detail. That I think it's one of those details right, where you read Scripture and you're like, oh, this is incredible how this all ties together. The elders and I were reading through Nehemiah currently. We've got a chain going back and forth, sharing thoughts, and, and Tim had this the other day, which was just awesome. I was like, I'm quoting you on that. Tim, we were reading uh, Nehemiah 8, and Tim said, The reading of God's word can often bring conviction, grief, and mourning over sin, but it shouldn't stay there. And that's what we see here in Joshua. That's what we see in the New Testament. Absolutely. And we're going to, I mean, we, lo we looked at all those verses that demonstrate, right? Sin describes me. Sinner describes me. Sinner describes you. But it doesn't stay there. The story doesn't stop there. Tim said it shouldn't stay there. It should ultimately lead to celebration because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And we see this in Nehemiah. We see this in Joshua. We see this in the New Testament. We see that our reproach is rolled away. So this condition of shame and disgrace and scorn, which is absolutely a reality for everyone who has ever lived, the story doesn't stop there. For believers, that's not the last chapter. The last chapter is Jesus rolling away the reproach. I mean, listen to these verses. Psalm 34, 4-5, through 5, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Isaiah 50, 7-9, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know I shall not be put to shame. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Scripture time and time again says those who believe in Jesus don't have to be ashamed. Romans 6, 6 through 7 and 14, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you think I've been perfect in my past? Good. I've been really awkward if you raise your hand. I'm not. I've said terrible things to people. I've thought terrible things about people. I've been lazy at work and disrespected my bosses in that regard. I mean, my life is not perfect by any means of the imagination. But when the enemy tries to point this out to me, says, hey, you should be ashamed because of what you said. I mean, there are times where I really love having a good memory, right, where I can, I can relive conversations perfectly. There are times where it's terrible. I can relive conversations I've had with people. I'm going to get something I said to an opponent on a soccer field junior year of high school. I can picture right where I was on the field when I said this to him. It was horrible. When the enemy tries to remind me of that, you should be ashamed of this. You should be disgraced because of this. Look at this taunt that I have over you. You know what my response is to that? Yeah, that was terrible. That was, that was an awful thing to say. That was an awful thing to do. But I'm not ashamed of that because I've repented of it. It grieved me. Absolutely. I went, I, I mean, I felt in the moment the Holy Spirit was like, what is, what, why would you do that? After the game, I went and I found the kid and I was like, look, you got to forgive me. And this high school student, he's like, literally said, he said, what are you talking about? And I said, what I said to you was, that was just horrible. Like, will you please forgive me? He said, that's weird, man. And I said, you don't have to think I'm making any sense right now, but I'm sorry, right? So the enemy can't hold that over me as a condition of shame and disgrace. Because, yeah, it was horrible. But that's the difference between what the world offers and what Jesus offers. Paul, in one of his letters, says, I don't regret grieving you. Because it was a holy grief that led to repentance, that led to change. See, the world, the devil operates in a cycle of guilt and shame, which leads to hiding, which leads to fear. I want you to feel guilty about this, this behavior that you know is wrong. I want you to feel guilty about it. I want you to be ashamed of it. I want you to hide it. We try and hide what we're ashamed of. And that's how the enemy wants us to operate. I want you to stay in this cycle of guilt and shame in hiding so that nothing ever changes. God operates with a cycle of conviction, right? Conviction is that holy awareness that we have sinned. That's how God operates. God operates under this cycle of conviction, which leads to repentance, which leads to changed behavior. This is what Jesus offers so that that condition of scorn and disgrace no longer has to apply to the believer. That our lives aren't marked by fear of death, by slavery to this fear, slavery to shame and disgrace. Because we've been set free in Jesus. And we can't do this for ourselves. What did they say as they were approaching the tomb? Who will roll this stone away for us? 
Who will deal with this obstacle because we possibly can't? The same thing is true of my sin. I can't roll away the reproach of sin in my own life. You can't either. Your favorite pastor, they couldn't do it. Your favorite speaker, they couldn't roll away the reproach of sin in your life. There's only one person who can, and he did. Jesus. So then what can we do? How are we to respond to this idea of reproach and dealing with this sin? Well, it's simple. Repent. It's got to be repentance. And there's two kinds I want to talk about this morning and, and make a distinction between. There's positional repentance. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. We are destined for hell. I have earned hell with everything that I've done with my sin. And then there's positional repentance. There's an awareness of this sin. Acts 3, 19 through 20, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Romans 10, 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's a positional repentance of recognizing that I have sinned against a holy God and have earned death. And, and when the Holy Spirit convicts, this is the moment where we profess, right? What does the Bible say? If you confess with your heart and believe with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. This is that positional repentance, that, that moment of turning from sin and turning to God, where we are now marked righteous based on the blood of Jesus. And Jesus talks about this. A lot of modern Christianity doesn't want to talk about sin doesn't want to talk about repentance. Any gospel that doesn't include sin and the need for repentance isn't the gospel in this heresy and should be avoided at all cost. Jesus says in Matthew 4:17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." This is a reality that Jesus addressed in his ministry, positional repentance. But then like I said, so I I profess that Jesus was Lord and Savior when I was a young child before I ever had a job and disrespected my boss through laziness, before I said terrible things, before I did terrible things, before I cheated on tests in school, right? Before these things, I professed that Jesus was Lord. So then why did that stuff continue to happen? Because I've been freed from the power of sin. Believers have been freed from the power of sin. This says those who believe are no longer slaves to sin. They are no longer under the power of sin, the dominion of sin. But we're not freed from the presence of sin yet. Sin is still a reality in this world and in our lives. We are being sanctified. We are being made holier. We are growing in our holiness. But we are not yet perfect. We are not yet perfect people who, without sin in our lives. This is where practical repentance comes in. So after that positional moment of declaring that Jesus is Lord, I need Him. He is my only way to heaven. Positional repentance, now we get to practical repentance. Where when we sin, there's that conviction, right? There's not that guilt that leads to shame, that leads to hiding. There's that holy conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to confessing our sins, that leads to transformation. 1 John 1, 8-9, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. I love that it says that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. But it starts with a confession of our sins. And there's a psalm that beautifully portrays the juxtaposition 
of the two approaches to sin. This, this idea of reproach, right? Going back to Joshua, a condition of shame and disgrace, reproach, sin. There's a psalm that deals with this perfectly. And I'm going to read a word that's part of the psalm. It's selah, S-E-L-A-H. Selah is not just a musical term, right? Sometimes as you're reading through the book of Psalms, maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. But as you're reading through the book of Psalms, you'll get to where it'll say like a maskal of David, a miklah of David. And there are these musical terms that are in there that aren't meant to be read as part of the psalm. It's just kind of notes to this poetry, to this song. But the word selah, if you encounter the word selah as you're reading, it's meant to be read. And what it was, it's a pause that was deliberately introduced to focus on what was just said. So when the priests were reading a psalm in the temple, they would say Selah and the people would stop and everybody would be quiet because what it was saying is, it was saying Selah, hey, time out, did you catch what was just said? You need to think about it. There are two Selahs in this coming passage. I'm going to read both of them and we're going to pause and I want you to think about the two halves of what we see in Scripture here. Considering this idea of reproach, considering this idea of guilt, shame, hiding cycle, or conviction, repentance, transformation cycle. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Did you catch the difference between those two halves? When I kept silent, when I hid this, when I refused to be honest and acknowledge my iniquity, acknowledge my sin, when I kept silent, I wasted away. It was killing me. It was heavy. My body was like the heat. Anybody ever been outside doing hard work in the middle of like an August day that's 147 degrees? And your body, <laughs> right? And your body is just, you get to a point where you're like, ah, I'm just leaving the wheelbarrow in the middle of the yard because there's not a chance I can lift that, right? That's what he describes hiding our iniquity is like. When our body is just wasting away from the weight of hiding this and trying to pretend like it's not a reality. If I hide my iniquity from the Lord, I'll be okay. No, if you hide your iniquity, your body grieves. You can't bear that weight. And the psalmist, led by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts in a pause to focus on that reality. And then he offers the opposite. And then he says, But when I confessed my iniquity to you, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Pause. Reflect on that. Reflect on the stark juxtaposition of hiding it and pretending like it's not there and confessing it and receiving forgiveness. And the believer is the one who has taken this and applied it in their lives. They said, no, I can pretend like Romans 3.23, Romans 3, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. I can pretend like that doesn't apply to me. I can ignore that. I can hide that. I can cover that up and reject that as truth. And then I'll give an interview where I talk about how I'm desperate to use my money to fund the quest for immortality because the idea of death cripples me. Or 
I can confess my sin, I can acknowledge my transgressions, and I can receive forgiveness. And the reproach, the taunt of the enemy, the condition of scorn and disgrace that he wants to hold over my head can be rolled away because I was willing to confess and repent. This is what we see foreshadowed back in Joshua. This beautiful promise of who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives if we repent and confess. So then what does this mean for us? Because again, right, I said it doesn't stop with the sin. It doesn't stop with that sentence just looming over our heads. There's forgiveness, there's redemption. But what then what does that mean for us moving forward as believers? Look at God's word. Look at Romans 6. We're going to be in Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8. Romans 6, 12 through 14. And don't worry, we're going to read these chapters this week as well in greater length. But Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. For the believer, sin has no power over us. We're still going to fight the presence of it. We're still going to be tempted. We're still going to have days where we give in, where we fail. But sin doesn't have power over us. To the believer, if you're here this morning and you feel like there's a sin you're just enslaved to, one, it doesn't have power over you. And two, if you feel like it's still looming over you and it's weighing on you and it's crushing you, let me ask you a very hard question. Are you stuck in a cycle of guilt and shame and hiding? And that's why it's wearing away at your body. Or have you confessed it? Have you repented from it? Have you turned from it? Because I see Scripture lay out two very clear paths of what happens when we approach our sin. But Romans 6 tells us that we are not under the dominion of it. We have been freed from that dominion. Romans 7, 4 through 6, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to him, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were by living by the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were under the power of sin, while we were under the dominion of sin, while we were enslaved to sin, we bore the fruit of death, of fear, of timidity, of not wanting to be known by people, of rejection, of bitterness, of envy, of hate, of lust, of greed, of anger. But then Jesus died. And we no longer bear that fruit. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So now we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8, 5-6. through 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is the life of the believer. Life, peace, freedom from fear, freedom from terror at the idea of our life ending because we know that we have been created for something larger than just what's in front of us. My purpose is larger than my bank account. My purpose is larger than my house. My purpose is larger than the car I drive. 
than having the most friends on social media, than having the biggest amount of followers. Right? No, that's not what life is about. Life is about freedom. That freedom is only possible through Jesus, through repentance. We have to acknowledge this. But for believers, take heart, take joy, be encouraged. That if you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, if you have believed with your heart, you've been freed from this. The reproach is gone. The enemy can't taunt you. You walk into the courtroom and the devil is the, the arguing lawyer and you're like, oh, that's not good. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus is the defending lawyer. I'm in pretty good shape. I know how this argument's going to go. So Christians, we don't have to live in guilt and shame. Make no mistake, if we sin, there should be conviction. There should be conviction that leads to repentance, but it's not this, this shame, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be embarrassed and hide from it. What, is, what else does Paul write in the New Testament? He says, confess your sins to one another and receive forgiveness. That doesn't sound like a life of shame. If I'm ashamed of my failings, of my sin, I'm not going to go to Tim as an elder and confess to him. I'm ashamed. I don't want him to know this about me. But if it's conviction, if it's a holy conviction, okay, that's sin. But there's freedom for that. There's forgiveness for that. This is what enables us to go to one another and, and confess our sins. As the scriptures say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So yeah, the Christian life is not perfect. But the Christian life doesn't have to be defined by fear and crippling slavery to this. Because God has rolled away the reproach. That's a joy. I mean, I know I'm not going to be perfect. I haven't been perfect up to this day. I'm not going to be perfect till the day I die. But I know that when I sin, I find forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. And I see, I see so many Christians who think that they're just stuck in a cycle of sin. Right? When I talk, oh, I'm just an angry person. I'm just an impatient person. Right? That's just who I am. No, that's who you were. Right? I love when people say, well, I was born this way. I'm like, yeah, that's why Jesus said you had to be born again. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's pretty lot, right? I was born angry. Yeah, yeah, that's why Jesus said you had to be born again. Because we were. We were born sinners. But then in Jesus, we're born again. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm just not a, I'm not a very controlled person. Well, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says the Holy Spirit who indwells you, who leads you, who empowers you, is a spirit of self-control. So we have to ask, okay, well, if I feel like I'm stuck in this cycle, is there repentance or is there just guilt and shame that's leading to hiding it? Or is there a godly grief? Paul writes about the godly grief that I already referenced, that godly grief that leads to repentance. He says, I'm not, I don't regret that. I'm okay with a letter that made you grieve and repent because that's where transformation happens. This is the reproach that has been rolled away for God's people. There's such beauty in that. And I think a lot of times we lose sight of that. And we consider ourselves still enslaved to the things of this world, still under power of the things of this world. And God's word says otherwise. I'm going to take God's word literally. When he says that you're no longer under dominion of sin, you're no longer a slave to sin, because I've set you free. Not from the presence, from the power. I'm going to say, okay, God, I trust you. I believe that. 
So then the question is, if we say that, if we say, I believe this, do we live that out? Does this define our lives? I want us to read some chapters this week that just remind us of this. We're going to do it a little bit differently. Sometimes I just give you one or two chapters. Today we're going to read a chapter a day. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? We're going to bookend with Isaiah 53. Monday and Saturday read Isaiah 53. Tuesday read Romans 5. Wednesday read Romans 6. Thursday read Romans 7. Friday read Romans 8. And just let these chapters be a reminder of a couple things. Let these chapters be a reminder of the lengths to which Christ went to die for us. Because here's the thing, when we downplay what Jesus did on the cross, we then downplay what we, what we need to respond to his death on the cross, right? So Isaiah 53 will do a beautiful job at reminding us of what Jesus went through on that cross. And then Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 will just be more of that looking at the freedom the release from the bondage of sin available in Jesus. So let these chapters this week be, be such just a joyful reminder of the truth of life in Christ. And then for the do, and there might be some of you who shake your head at this, who are like, what? That's, that's kind of weird. That's kind of odd. But we did this. When I was a camp counselor, we would do this with the kids. And it was incredible to see like the senior high students respond to this. We, would, we had our, our maintenance group build a cross and they put a bunch of nails on that cross and we'd have the kids write on a piece of paper like all the lies the enemy wanted them to believe about them right like this is who you are this is who you'll you'll never be more than a bad husband you'll never be more than you know you did this 20 years ago that's still who you are that's who you're always only ever going to be right You've been fired from every job you have. You are incompetent. That's the extent of your identity. You're a liar. You're a cheater. We had the kids write down whatever lie the enemy had convinced them of, whatever taunt, reproach, the enemy was holding over their head. And we wrote it on a piece of paper and we stuck it on this cross and we just left it there the whole week. And then on the last night, as we presented the gospel, as we presented what Jesus did, we took those pieces of paper off the cross and we threw them in the fire. And I mean, you saw kids just break down at this visual realization of what Jesus did in their lives. So go ahead, write down on a piece of paper the taunts the enemy tries to hold over your head. Sam, remember you did this, remember you did that. This is what you should be ashamed of. This is what you should feel guilty over. And maybe, I mean, first, make sure that you've repented of it. If there's something that comes up, make sure you've repented of it. It's gotta begin with repentance. But then write it down on this list, and then I want you to destroy that list. If you've got a shredder, shred it, and then pull it out and shred it again. If you've got a fire pit, throw that list in there and burn it up. And then write a new list and stick it on a bathroom mirror, stick it on your front door where you're going to see it every day, and write down the taunt of death is gone, the enemy cannot tell me I'm disgraced, death has no claim on me, I am a slave to righteousness. Because, see, we like thinking that we're no longer slaves to sin. I'm free. Well, you're now a slave to righteousness. No, no, I want to go back to where I can do whatever I want. No, you're now a slave to righteousness. You were a slave to death. You were a slave to the grave. Now you're a slave to righteousness. You are bonded to Jesus. Where he goes, you go. What he does, you do. What he says, you say. That's the new list. 
that defines the Christian life. Not this list of taunts and disgrace and shame and scorn and contempt that the enemy wants you to convince still is over you. That reproach has been rolled away. The new list that defines me is death has no claim on me, the enemy has no taunt over me because I am free in Jesus because I am a slave to righteousness. That's the new list. And so for prayer ideas, maybe it's praising God and thanking. Maybe it's been a while since you've really considered him rolling away the reproach in your life. So maybe your prayer this week needs to be an outpouring of gratitude. Maybe there's stuff that the Holy Spirit's going to bring up that you need to repent of, that you've been pretending isn't an issue. Maybe there needs to be repentance this week. I don't, I don't know where you all are. Maybe one day it's one, maybe one day it's the other. Maybe it's you need to be reminded about this freedom of life in Jesus. Maybe you're like, okay, I, uh, repentance, nothing that I've repented of everything, but I still just feel down. So maybe you just need, Lord, show me what freedom in Jesus looks like this week. Show me what living in that joy looks like. Living in surrender to the Spirit looks like. But let's take this reminder from Joshua 5 that the Lord has rolled away the reproach of the enemy, and let's live it out this week. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Hands up if you want to be somebody under reproach. Hands up if you want the world who is still under reproach to know what it means to not live like that. All right, so let's live it out this week. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you. You have done what we are totally incapable of doing. We cannot remove the stone. We cannot remove the taunt of the enemy. We cannot free ourselves from the grave. We cannot kill sin. We cannot destroy death. You can and you did. And so, Lord, we praise you for your mercy and your goodness in that. We praise you for your kindness and your graciousness in that, Lord. That you forgive us. That you promise forgiveness if we would repent. So, God, we, we praise you. And if there are those of us here in our own lives where we have things we need to repent from, burden us with a holy conviction. Convict us of where we need to turn from sin and to you. And then, Lord, in your spirit, in your spirit alone, empower us to proclaim this testimony to the people in our lives of freedom from reproach, of the joy of new life in Christ, of dying to sin and being raised to newness of life so that we can now live for Jesus and Jesus alone, for the advancement of your kingdom and your glory. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.